July. Glad you're with us this morning. Um, if you missed the last couple weeks, I highly recommend going and listening to the podcast or watch them. Uh, it's a lot of fun. We're really blessed here at Common Ground to have a, a handful of, of teachers, and I'm the type of learner I, I take notes, you know, when I'm listening, and I took a lot of notes the last two weeks. Um, and what stuck out to me, you know, personally, what I think God was speaking to me, kind of where I was at, and I'm not sure where you were at or what you got out, but that God can do whatever he wants through even just one person. You know, because I look at the world a lot, of, and sometimes I get frustrated, or I look at our area, and I'm like, man, we need more people saved, more, you know, and I get a little, fr- but then it's like God used Jonah, who was rebellious and unfaithful, to save a whole bunch of people, and he understood some great things about God. He knew who God was. He's like, see, God, I knew you were going to save these people, and I didn't want you to. God used him anyway. And then Elijah, who was all by himself, um, and, and, you know, his showdown, talking trash, I love that, um, with the prophets of Baal, and, and one guy being faithful. And so all of us, I mean, what might God do? And he can do it whenever he wants, just through our faithfulness. So I found that encouraging, that God is God, and, and our job is just to be faithful and watch what he might do. Um, well, in this series, so this is a fun series. Uh, through the summer, this say what, is that really in the Bible? And there's a lot of places we could go. We were even talking about it this morning, um, about the, the tribe of Benjamin. You know, Adam was reading some of this in, in Judges, the tribe of Benjamin, who um, they need some women. They're about to run out, you know, and so, but the rest of the tribes were like, yeah, we promise not to give them any women, but if they kidnap them, that's okay. So they gave them permission to kidnap their women to make them wives. What? Right? Or, or there's a prophet going along and, and some youths, that's what the Bible calls them, youths are, are following him. Hey, Baldy, making fun of him. And he's like, what? Call some bears down to kill them all. Like, what? That's in the Bible. But we're not preaching on any of those. So today though, Paul already gave it away. You know where we're going. Turn to Exodus. But today I, I want to look at this kind of broad story um, and, and nail in. There's a whole lot of things in Exodus that make you go, what? Like, did that really Happen and did it really happen like that? The story of Exodus of Moses leading God's people out of Egypt and all of that is probably the most retold story in Scripture. God does this great thing, and then over and over through the rest of the Old Testament and the New, people point back to it. They're like, "Remember what God did there? Look back, remember, remember." And it's even in some of the songs that we sing today, pointing back to the God who can. Part the seas. You know, even the Waymaker song, you know, God made a way for Israel. It's all so applicable to us today. Uh, by the way, I loved that new song, but I had trouble singing it because it's a whole bunch of hymn, like lines from old hymns. And I loved it, but I, I wanted to sing the tune to that hymn at that time. So we need to do that more and I'll get a hang of it. Um, but turn to Exodus, if you would. Exodus, we're going to start in chapter one. Uh, if you don't know where Exodus is, it's right after. Genesis. It's early in your Bible. Um, If you need to use your table of contents, that's totally okay. Look it up. But I'm going to start out in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we we love you. We thank you that we can gather, that we do have the freedom to worship. God, we trust you. And, And God, I do ask that you would encourage us with your word, with who you are, that we would have more peace, more joy, uh, more security in you, in, in a world that's in turmoil, um, in, in our own lives where we're wrestling even just with our own thoughts, our own minds, and all these things. God, you are still God. You have control and we can trust you. So God, I, I pray that we would trust you. Um, do what you want with us. God, there's some clear things in this passage, but if there's something specific you want each of us to hear, I, I pray that Holy Spirit, you would reveal that to us and that we could make any changes uh, that you want us to make. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So if you're not familiar with this story in Exodus, uh, there's some movies that are out there that you could go watch. Maybe you remember Prince of Egypt, uh, the nice cartoon. Doing my research, I decided to watch the most recent one. Um, I don't remember what it's called. And I don't remember the actor's name. Anyway, it was not very good. Um, but, but as I watched it, I, I mean, it was okay. But, but the miracles, they kind of made them like not miracles. They made them like natural events that God kind of claimed. I'm like, yeah, I, I'm not so crazy about that. But the question I do want to ask is, these miracles that we see in Exodus, did they happen? If so, why? And maybe another question that you've asked as you read the Bible, why don't we see stuff like that happening today, right? I mean, he, he does these amazing things, parting the sea, these plagues. How come we don't see stuff like that today? And so we're going to touch on that, and I think that matters. But we're going to start in Exodus. Now, just to, to catch us up in, in history, um, if you're not familiar with history, that's okay. But God called his people, right? He called Abraham, one man, then his son Isaac, then his son Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons-ish. I mean, you figure it out. It's kind of like that. But they turned out to be the 12 tribes, and they were God's chosen people. God's chosen people to make himself known in the world. So he calls them. Um, and then there's this, in, in the end of Genesis, most of the book of Genesis is actually about Abraham and his family. It ends with them in Egypt. Remember the plague happens, there's the, the story of Joseph, one of um, Jacob's sons, in fact his favorite son, uh, you're not supposed to have favorite kids, but he did, uh, Joseph was his favorite, um, and so his brothers try to kill him, they think they're going to kill him, instead they sell him into slavery, he ends up in Egypt, but he's a faithful man, and God was with him, so he ends up being you know, number two in Egypt, um, uh, uh, a famine is coming. God tells Joseph that this famine is, is coming. So Egypt plans for it. They have all this food. Anyway, when the famine comes, Abraham and all his family come to Egypt, and they stay there because Joseph, the brother, you know, there's a great story. You should read it sometime. They reunite, and things are, are good. And they end up staying there a little longer than expected, right? They go down there. Their promised land is the land of Canaan, and that's where they were. God promised to give them that land. He made this covenant with Abraham that he would give him land, specifically the land of Canaan. It's actually the land that Israel is in right now, um, only it was bigger than what they have. He promised him seed. Uh, specifically, Jesus will be that seed, but also part of that was to be a great nation and promised to bless him. Well, for 400 years now, they're in Egypt becoming that great nation. They're growing and growing and growing. And so let's set the scene. Exodus 1.1. says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Let us or lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. 
And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So there's the situation, Israel, and, and uh, historians would look at this and say there's probably close to 4 million Israelites at this point. So 4 million of them now enslaved in Egypt, and they're going to cry out to God. Uh, 400, again, 400 years, they're there, they're oppressed. We're going to kind of skip a stone through Exodus. We're not going to read the whole thing or we'd be here all day. Um, but the next thing we're going to see is Moses. This man, Moses, is born. And he's born in a time, you know, part of this, what we just read, they keep multiplying. And so the king, the Pharaoh says, what are we going to do about this? Let's just kill all the boys that are born. So whenever an Israelite woman would give birth, they, they were supposed to kill, the midwives from Egypt are supposed to kill every boy born. Moses is one of those. You might be familiar with the story. They put him in a basket, float him down the Nile River. One of the daughters of Pharaoh finds him, adopts him, and raises him as her own. Uh, kind of a cool story there, but there's Moses. Now Moses, again, I told you we're skipping through here. So if you don't know the story, pay attention. Moses then grows up right as a prince of, of Egypt. He really does, but he's an Israelite who's familiar with the courts of the Pharaoh, which is kind of cool. Well, he's 40 years old, and when he's 40, he sees an Egyptian beating uh, uh, one of his brothers, right, one of his fellow Israelites, and so he kills the Egyptian. So you see in there, Moses had some kind of idea that this isn't right, and I think I'm supposed to do something about it. Well, he went about it the wrong way. Kills this guy. Pharaoh hears about it, comes after him. He flees to a place called Midian, and he's there for 40 years. So, I mean, as you read through Exodus, it covers a, quite a bit of time in there, but he goes there, becomes a shepherd, gets a wife, has a son, and he's there. Then, in Exodus 3, we see God calling him while he's there. He's now 80 years old, just a young man, um, and God calls him and he says, remember what you were trying to do when you were 40? I want to do it now. I've heard my people. We're going to set them free. So turn to Exodus 2, 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I really like those last words there. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Right? They were probably in that kind of like what Paul was talking about. Maybe you, you're in something in your life, you're like, man, does God even know what's happening? Right here, you see God is watching, and God knows, and in his time, he will act. And so he makes this plan. He's going to save his people. He's going to set them free. Uh, again, we're going to skip over some, but we're going to see here the plagues. So God calls um, Moses, and he gives him signs. Maybe you remember the signs. He gives him signs. He says, go to Pharaoh, right? Bring your brother Aaron. Aaron will speak for you because that was one of Moses' objections. I don't talk good. He's like, fine, use Aaron. Aaron can, can speak for you. Well, they go, and they meet with Pharaoh, you know, and they say, God wants to set the people free, so set them free. And Pharaoh's going to say no, and you're going to see this pattern through each one. Set, set God's people free. Pharaoh says no. They say, well, there's going to be a plague. He says, I don't care. The plague happens, Pharaoh's like, I'm so sorry, I'll set you free, you know, and then plague goes away, and then he's like, psych, not letting you go. There's kind of the pattern through 10 plagues, or through nine, the 10 one is, is different, um, but, but that's where we're at. So now turn to chapter 7, chapter 7, I told you we're skipping through it, 
But I want to look at the cool stuff. That's, that's the fun part about this series. The say what? Chapter 7, 1 through 7. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell, tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his hand. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So there it is. God gives them the instruction and even tells them what's going to happen. I, I kind of wish sometimes he would do that with me. Like, I want you to do this. It's not going to work out so well, but trust me anyway, in the end it will. That's what he gives to Moses here. So they understand what's going to happen. And then we see the, pl the plagues. Now we're just going to read a little bit of the first plague. Um, and then skip through the other ones. But the first one is water into blood. So still chapter 7, uh, verses 20 through 22. I just want to see what he says here. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and then in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. There's a little secret there, right? We're going to say, why does God do this, and why does he do it this, this way? You see the secret. First, this is the first plague, the, the water into blood. Now, some historians who, who deny miracles will say it was actually algae and it just looked red. No, the Bible says it was blood. It turned into blood. And so they started digging next to it to get fresh water that they could. Well, the magicians, so these are demonic worshipers, right? So they have many gods, you know, Egypt, maybe you've seen all the movies. They have these many gods, and behind those gods are actually demons that actually have power. And so these magicians do the same thing. Oh, you, you turned it into blood. We can do that too. So you see a secret there of this whole thing. There's a battle of the spirits. There's a battle of gods. God challenging their gods, similar to Elijah last week, right? The gods of Baal. Who's the Lord? Who's the Lord? And so here the magicians are like, well, we can do that too, no big deal. And so Pharaoh says, fine, I'm not listening. And then from then on, you see plague after plague after plague, right? There's, uh, after the blood, there's the frogs, frogs everywhere. After the frogs come the gnats. After the gnats come the flies. After the flies, the livestock dies. So you go down, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Um, Boils on the skin. So after all the livestock dies, now they're going to start touching the Egyptians. By the way, through all of this, Israel's protected. So this is affecting the Egyptians, but not the Israelites who are living really in the same place or really close. So they're getting boils on the skin. Finally, seven, hail comes. So all their crops are getting messed up with the hail. After the hail come the locusts, uh, which is a swarm of basically grasshoppers. So here's the situation. They don't have water, right? They're struggling with water. 
their animals are all dying, all their crops are destroyed, they're sick, it's pretty miserable. And after each one, there's, you know, the hail comes, it's like, please stop, I'll let you go. Okay, you know, Moses prays, the hail stops, he says, nope, I'm not letting you go, we still need all these slaves. This happens for those nine plagues until, or those eight plagues, then the ninth plague. And again, there's another little secret in this ninth plague. Darkness. The ninth plague is three full days of darkness. Now, some will argue that that, that was a sandstorm because that, in that, that area of the world, there's a big sandstorm, blocked out the sun for three days. Maybe, whatever. Darkness comes upon. Who is the big Egyptian god, right? I mean, they were polytheistic, many gods, but who was their main one? The sun god, right? So this ninth plague was definitely a slap in the face of the sun god who is now blocked out. No power. So the people here, all right, Pharaoh is a type of God. Pharaoh is somebody, um, most powerful man in, in the world at that time. Their main God, Ra, uh, the sun God, and God here is, is attacking all of that, making something very clear of who is God, right? Who is the Lord? Now you move to the 10th plague, and this is the death of the firstborn. The 10th plague gets a little bit more attention because in this 10th plague, you see uh, God tell his people, this is where the Passover comes from. It says, this is the last one, the firstborn in every house, the firstborn male in every house is going to die. The way to protect yourself, Israelites, is to kill a lamb. It has to be a perfect lamb, right? This is where it, it leads to Jesus later. It points straight to Jesus. Kill this lamb, put the blood in your doorpost. The angel will pass over your house. That's why it's called the Passover, but it will touch every house that doesn't do that. So the Egyptians, the firstborn will die. Why would God finish with that plague? How did this story begin with Moses? Pharaoh killing all the males or wanting to kill all the males of the Israelites. And God is like, yeah, okay, I can do this better than you, <laughs> right? And so, I mean, it gives me kind of chills there. But he kills the firstborn in all uh, the Egyptians' homes. So finally, Pharaoh says, I will let them go. He lets them go. They leave. And then, of course, he changes his mind, and they come after him. It's kind of cool how God does this. When the Israelites leave, uh, they plunder the Egyptians, right? The Egyptians are begging them to leave. Please go. They're like, okay, we'll go, but give us your golden stuff. I'm like, okay, fine. So they leave rich, right? And they get to the Red Sea. So here's another say what moment. They get to the Red Sea where they're trapped. They had seen God do all these awesome things, and then they start crying at the Red Sea. Oh, we're trapped, and the Egyptians are going to come kill us. We should have stayed back there. It would have been better. Um, Moses is so patient with them. So turn to 14. <laughs> Exodus 14, starting in verse 21. Here's another big say what moment when, when they're at the Red Sea. This is 14, starting in verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. And he made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. One of the cool things I noticed, even just this time studying this, how did he do it? It took all night. A wind blew all night. So, so the Israelites are camped there, right? They're hanging out. And through the night, it's like it's parting more and more and more but by a wind. And when they wake up in the morning, or I would have stayed up all night and watched, but when they wake up the morning, right, there's two walls of water, and it's dry down the middle. Verse 22. And all the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea 
all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us free, flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Picture that. He makes very clear writing here that the water was like a wall on the right. This is no natural act, right? This is truly a sign, truly a miracle. Walking through a sea with a wall of water on the right and the left. I mean, I, I have that picture of, you know, like big fish just swimming, you know. Maybe a turtle coming along and like sticking its head out the side. Watch it. I mean, but that's, that's the picture, right? This wall on the right and left. Imagine being one of those Israelites walking along going, huh, okay, God is big. He can do this. And the Egyptians, here's what I don't understand. They're kind of knuckleheads. They're like, we'll just follow him in, right? As if this is a natural thing. And then they go in. Then they realize, oh, the Lord is fighting for them, which God said that's what was going to happen. I'm going to do all this so that they know I'm the Lord. They all die. Say, what? <laughs> right? I mean, we see this in cartoons. We see pictures of it, whatever. But did this actually happen? Did all of this stuff actually happen? happen? Before we answer that, I want to look at verses 29 or 30 to 31. I want to see the people of Israel's response to this. Verse 30, thus the Lord, this is chapter 14 still, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. That's what God was after. He wanted the people to recognize, I am the Lord, trust me. And they had a proper response, fear and belief. So now the question, did this happen? Well, first, what we're reading here is, is a narrative, right? It's written by Moses during their time of 40 years in the wilderness, and it's written as if it's history. This isn't written as apocalypse. There's several different um, types of literature in scripture, right? In the Psalms, you see a lot of poetry and things like that. In some of the prophets, you'll see apocalyptic literature, right? Prophecies using a lot of, of signs, you know, it, it's, it's like and as, and so it, it's sometimes it's hyperbole and, and it's poetry trying to give a picture. Or, right, or you see parables. Jesus speaks in parables. And this actually means this, and this actually means that. And some people will read through the Bible and go, oh, it's all parable. There was actually a period of time where a lot of people just read the Bible. None of it actually happened. It just means special things. We have to find the secret hidden message. No. This is written as narrative, as history, that this happened. And in Psalm 78, 43 to 45, Asaph, who wrote this Psalm, says this. Speaking of God, he says, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his, 
and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so that they would not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. Asaph, the writer of that, he believed this was a real event that actually happened. In Acts, if you remember uh, the first martyr, Stephen. Stephen was a a leader in the early church. Uh, Stephen was going to be stoned. He was going to die. And in that moment there, he gives this great sermon. And in his sermon, he speaks a lot about what happened with Moses. And here's just one verse, one piece of a verse. He says, this man, Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. So Stephen believes that happened. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, you know, right, he believed this was something real that happened. Hebrews eleven twenty nine. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Maybe the apostle Paul, we're not sure. But the writer says this, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And we could go, I mean, over and over throughout Scripture, meaning the other writers in Scripture, all the way to Jesus in the New Testament, they believed this was a real event. So if we read this and go, I don't believe it, we have to throw out the rest of the Bible. You really do. If this did not happen, we can't trust the rest, which means we can't trust that Jesus died and rose from the dead, which means we have no faith. Right? I mean, you run down that list, and pretty soon our faith is vain, and we have nothing to place it in. So this is a real event, but why? right? Why did God do it this way? I, I read this and, and I think, there's part of me, you could have made that a lot easier, right? Why go through all this stuff? Why not just, just do it? Just start with the last one or whatever it is. Why did God allow Pharaoh first to harden his heart and then God hardened his heart, right? Why did God th- go through all of this to make it happen? Well, I told you we're skipping a stone and now we're going to skip the stone back. Turn to Exodus 3. In Exodus 3, this is where we see the, the first call. Moses, when he's out in the wilderness, right, he's out there as a shepherd, and he's walking along, and he sees this burning bush. That's the first sign we see there, this bush that's burning but not being burned up. And he's like, that's weird. I'm going to go look at that. He goes there. God speaks to him out of this bush. And in that encounter, we get one of these, again, secrets of why God does it this way. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is where we see God really for the first time giving his personal name, his covenant name to the nation of Israel. And that name is, we see here, I am. Or maybe you've heard it, Yahweh. Maybe you've heard the name Jehovah, which was a a way that they couldn't figure out how to say it, right? Or or some, they wouldn't say it, so they said Jehovah instead. But this is God's personal name, which means I am. Self-existent, always was, always will be. That name means the source of everything. I am. I am not like any of the other gods that, that are out there or the claim to be gods. They all have creation stories. 
If you read those polytheistic cultures, you know, Egypt, um, Greek, Rome, all those places, their gods have origin stories, you know, kind of like the Marvel comics, but not, right? But, but they, they originated somewhere. God is different. He says, I am that I am. I always have been. And I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I'm the one who made that promise before. I'm the one. If you remember, it's me. Now, in a polytheistic society, in a culture back then, a lot of houses, I mean, they had many gods, and houses would have their own god. Um, so there would be, right, there's the Egyptian god, there's Ra, and then there's this god over here, there's the god of fertility over here, that was everybody's favorite one. Um, but all these other gods, but then it would narrow down of, this is our household god, and so in their house, they would have these little idols, and as you read through the Old Testament, you see times where people like steal other people's, it's weird. But God here is saying, I am the god of your household. So he's starting kind of where they're at, right? This was part of culture. I am your household God, but I'm more than that. I am the God over all. So he gives his, his name, right? I am that I am. And this is very important that God is the God. That's what he's trying to get across here. He is the God. The Israelites clearly struggled with syncretism. Um, Paul talked about it last week, but he's like, I'm not using that word. Well, I'm going to use the word. <laughs> Syncretism, that was the issue last week, right? Where uh, Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal um, because Israel was going, you know what? Yeah, Yahweh's our God, but there's also these other gods, and let's just, let's just mix it, right? We like some of this stuff, we like some of this, and let's just bring it all together. And God says, no. I, I love the way he says it to Elijah, and Elijah tells it to the people. He says, stop limping. Right? That's what Paul talked about last week. Stop limping between two opinions. If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. Get off the fence. Right? Choose. Here we have the same situation. The Israelites had been in Egypt 400 years. Think about that. How long we're celebrating tomorrow, our nation. How long have we been a nation? 240 years? <laughs> right? They were in Egypt for 400 years. That puts it in perspective a little bit. They were there a long time. And so aspect of Egyptian life and Egyptian religion had seeped into their lives. And you know it because right after this, uh, Israel, you know, they go across the sea, then they get, and Moses goes up on a mountain to get the law. You know, there's going to be a new covenant God makes with his people. And while he's up there, the people are like, he's taking too long. What are we going to do? Like, yeah, let's make an idol, <laughs> right? And they make this golden idol and they worship it. And they're like, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Well, that idol was probably one of Egypt's gods. And so they were super confused, right? They were still stuck in this syncretism. We want Yahweh, but we also want some of this. And God wants to make very, very clear he is God. Um, you don't have to turn there, just one verse, but it's Exodus 7, 17. It says, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord, Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and, and it shall be turned into blood. Why does he do it? So you will know that I am the Lord. In your Bible, whenever you see Lord in all caps, that's God's personal name of Yahweh. Sometimes you'll see Lord lower, and that's a different word, but it's also for God, right? But, but all caps is Yahweh, that you will know that I am, I am. <laughs> you will know I am the one and only that's why he's doing it this way. It's a big deal. That's why this story is told over and over. God wants to make a big impression on his people, but also on the rest of the world. If you remember later, 40 years later, when, when they finally go to take the land, the first place they attack is Jericho. 
and there's a lady in Jericho that, that helps protect the spies because she says, stories have been told. We know your God is the real God. She's like, can you have mercy on me, please? So these stories are spread throughout the world. I mean, things like this don't just happen and not be told. The rest of the world heard about it. That's God's point, that they will know that he is the Lord. And then in Exodus 12, I told you we're skipping around. But in Exodus 12, we see the final plague, right, where the firstborn is killed. In Exodus 12, 12, it says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. My goodness. <laughs> you remember being a kid? And every now and then, dad, or maybe you still are a kid, dad gets that tone, like, I'm the one in charge, stop, right? It's like, oh, we're, we're done. I feel like God kind of has that tone right here. <laughs> like, I'm the Lord, enough's enough. I'm going to execute judgment on these false gods that you guys think are something. I'm going to show they're nothing. I'm the Lord. It's me, and it's only me. God is making known his exclusivity and supreme authority. That's why he does this in such a dramatic fashion. Each plague attacks a false Egyptian god, right? And then he attacks Pharaoh, the, the, the most powerful man in the world. He is making very clear, it's me and it's only me. It's the same thing that Elijah said. If the Lord is God, follow him. Stop limping between two opinions. That's why he does it this way. Now you're going to see throughout the Old Testament, this pattern kind of, it just repeats itself. Right? The people drift away from God. Right, God judges them. They come back and they repent, and he restores them. It just goes on and on and on. They had this problem with idolatry. Until, actually, you see something change later. They are conquered as a nation, right? And they're, they're, they're taken out of Israel. Later they come back, and they have somewhat of a renewed faith at that point where um, they get to legalism becomes their thing. So when Jesus comes on the scene, they're struggling with legalism, but they're not really struggling with idolatry for the most part anymore. But people do struggle with idolatry. So God is wanting to make clear, I am the one God, you know, get rid of your idols. But he's also doing something else. Remember the covenant that he made, land, seed, and blessing. Well, they have the seed. They become a great nation but they're not in their land. God is faithful to his word. He promised them the land, and he's going to fulfill that. God was gracious to save his people and establish a special covenant with them, pointing to the complete fulfillment in Jesus. That's partly what we're seeing here. So he brings them out dramatically, honoring his first covenant with Abraham, and then he gives them a new covenant. And in this new covenant, it doesn't replace the Abrahamic, but this is where he gives them the law. So if you read Genesis, Exodus, what well, Moses wrote all five, the first five books of the Bible, he wrote those during the 40 years in the wilderness. Genesis is past, but then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is laying out not only what happened, but God's law, his standard, so that the people could have a measure. Okay, this is what sin is. This is what he expects of us. And then it's like, all right, we'll try and do it. Oh my goodness, we can't. So then he also gave them the sacrificial system. So when you sin, do this to make atonement for your sin, to be right with God. All of this pointing to Jesus. So that when Jesus comes on the scene, God in flesh, he is their sacrificial lamb and can set up a new covenant, which they would be looking forward to from this time on. So all of this happened for a reason, to make a point that I am the one and only God, and I can save, right? Right? 
trust me to save? Did the people deserve it? The people did not deserve to be saved, right? You see it over and over how they complain and they grumble. Uh, you know, Moses, why'd you take us? We had great meat there. Now we have no meat. And Moses like, God, these people are driving me crazy. What are we going to do? He said, I'll send some quail. They can have some quail, right? He sends the man. He feeds them every day, right, for 40 years. And the miracle after miracle, uh, a pillar of cloud in the day to show them I'm with you, a pillar of fire at night to show them I am with you. He is making a great point right? Calling his people, again, pointing all the way forward to be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the seed who would bless the whole world. Fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant, he would be the lamb who would die uh, in, in mirror of the Mosaic covenant, the sacrificial system. All this was for a reason, repeated over and over. So when Jesus came, they're like, we get it, right? We, we get it. John the Baptist, he's standing there. He sees Jesus walking down the road. He has his disciples around him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because of what happened here, these people knew what that meant. The Lamb of God who would be a sacrifice. That is Jesus, our Christ, who would sacrifice. But now, one other question. Why don't we see these things happen now? I, don't you kind of like me wish, like, why, why don't you do this sometimes? Throughout Exodus, we're going to see several other things happen. We're going to see people rebel. Now, this is one I hope God doesn't do right now. But at, at one point, Moses draws a line in the sand. He's like, if you're for God, cross the line. If you're not, stay over there. And a bunch of people cross the line, but a bunch of people don't. He's like, all right, y'all, put your swords on and, and go kill. And they went and they killed about 3,000 of them. I mean, God is making really clear, it's about me, and, and you need to make a choice. Right later, there's another rebellion. People going, oh, we don't want Moses to lead us. We want to be in charge. God just creates an earthquake, opens up the ground and swallows him and then closes it back up. That would be great right now, right? <laughs> I, I mean, there's times in my life where I'm like, God, if you could just open the ground, like that would be awesome. You could solve some of our problems. But why doesn't God do it this way? Well, in Hebrews, Hebrews 1, verses 1 and two gives us, I think, a little bit of insight. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. There's only three times in scripture where you see miracles as like a regular dose, like a daily thing. The first is here, right? Moses and, and that 40 years in the wilderness. Things are happening all the time. Then it doesn't for a long time until Elijah comes along, and that's who we looked at last week. Elijah, kind of miracle after miracle, doing these special things. And then, not so much until Jesus and the disciples. You know, people look at this and go, oh, in the early church, there's all these miracles. This should be happening now. Throughout history, this is not God's modus operandum, if that's the right way to say it, right? This isn't how he normally does things. Three times he's done it, and each time it's been because he had a special message. He was doing something unique. He had a special message and a special messenger, right? Moses was that special prophet. Elijah was that special prophet. And then Jesus. So in these last days, Jesus is the last word, meaning there ain't no more prophecy after Jesus, right? There's no more new messages from God. Um, the Mormon church, they claim this new message. No, it, Hebrews is very clear. This is it, right? And here's the thing about miracles. How well do miracles really convince people? Look at the people coming out of Egypt. 
the miracles didn't convince a lot of them. It, it, that's one of those things I find very confusing. Like you go through this, this dry land with a wall of water on either side, and you get out the other side, and you're like, I don't know who did that. I don't get it, right? Jesus, the miracles he did brought people back to life, you know, multiplied the loaves. And go through all these miracles he did. When he died, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven, how many followers did he have? 120, arguably as many as 400. That's it. The miracles didn't convince people. So even now, and, and, and Jesus would say that. They're like, hey, do something special so we can see it. He said, no. He said, even somebody came back from the dead, you guys wouldn't believe. And a little bit later, he comes back from the dead, and they don't believe. Right? Miracles don't convince. But we have a couple times where he does it, and then these stories are told over and over and over so that we will read them and understand and have faith in the God who does miracles. Does he do miracles now? I believe absolutely. Right? Should we pray for healing? Absolutely. Can God split the earth? Absolutely. And I think God does do miracles today. But as a day-to-day thing, that's not how he operates because he wants us to have faith. Right? When, when uh, Thomas, you remember Thomas who comes to Jesus, or before, uh, the other disciples are like, hey, Thomas, we've seen Jesus risen from the dead. He's like, I'm not going to believe unless I see. And then Jesus appears to him. He's like, dude, touch my hand. Right? right? Touch my, look, I'm alive. And he says, blessed are you. You see and you do believe. Blessed are those who don't see and believe. And so we have these stories and we have the reliability. You know, if you read the Bible, you're like, I can't believe that for what? It, study it. Look into it. This is the most reliable book there is on the planet. We can trust what he's doing. Now, the other reason I think God does it this way that we see, and and again, through Exodus, we see story after story after story, that God brought his people out of Egypt, but then he had to take Egypt out of his people. You know, as I was studying, I read that, and that really resonated with me. He took his people out of Egypt, but then he had to take Egypt out of his people, right? They wanted, they kept wanting to go back, right? They left. Oh, this is going to be so much. Oh, let's go back. It was better there. It was better there. It was better there. No, it wasn't right? He had to take Egypt out of his people. And he does it over those 40 years, right? Those, I mean, if you know the story, they come out, they go straight from Egypt. They come across, they go to the promised land. I mean, they went straight there. And then they send some spies in to look at the land. And the spies come back, they're like, it's bad over there. There's giants in there. Like, well, what's it like? Oh, there's a lot of milk. It's great. What's the fruit like? The grapes are bigger than you've ever seen. It's great. But there's giants. We can't do it. And so God is like, okay, fine, except for two, right? Two of the spies, uh, they come back, they're like, well, yeah, everything they say is true, but God can do anything, so let's go, right? The people believe the 10 spies, not the two, so for, for the next 40 years, they have to wander in the wilderness so that everybody over the age of 20 dies. I mean, think about that. So if you were 25 years old at this time, and you were there, and you said, yeah, I agree with them, we shouldn't take it, you don't get to go to the promised land. You died within the next 40 years, meaning very few people were over the age of 60 when they went in. That's kind of one of those weird things, right? You have Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else died, right? Because God was doing something, taking Egypt out of his people. You will be mine. I think that's very relevant to us today, right? God saves us through Jesus, but isn't there a piece of us that wants to go back? (laughs) Don't we long for the world? Don't we even long to, to, to blend? Oh my goodness. We do this. I want Jesus, when I was in high school, I heard this all the time. I believe in Jesus, but I don't want to be a Jesus freak, right? I'm going to follow Jesus and do whatever I want sexually. We want to, we want to mix it all together. No, if the Lord is God, follow him. 
right? That's it. Make a choice. Get off the fence and let's choose to follow him. Let's get rid of these idols in our lives. You know, we don't have idolatry maybe like the way they did then. I mean, maybe some of us do, but, but we don't like set up temples and whatever and worship these other things, but we, we do have idols. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's your kids. Yeah, you know, think about that one on your drive home. You can make an idol out of your own kids. But we do make these idols, and we struggle with this syncretism too, bringing other things in. I'm not sure if you realize how much Eastern religion and thought has moved into the American church. It really started in the 60s, but, but the stuff moved in. Why is it that you might naturally think that you're going to be spiritual for the rest of your life, but not physical? That's Gnosticism. That was an early heresy that moved in. That was from Greek philosophy, that the body is bad and the spirit is good. That's not what the Bible teaches. God made the body and said it's good. We messed it up through sin. But God's going to fix that and restore. So we have these little things where we think, right? But it's, it's Eastern thought or these other things that we just kind of mix it and we don't even realize we're doing it. But if the Lord is God, follow him and we can believe what he says completely. Let's let God take Egypt out of us. So as we, we kind of wrap up, you know, this is one of those really cool stories. It happened 3,500 years ago. But it's a story told over and over and over for the reason. There's one God. There's only one. His name is Yahweh. He revealed himself in Jesus, who died on the cross, rose from the dead, that we would be saved. And let's follow him and him alone in grace and in love. God is a jealous God because he loves you. He wants all of you, <laughs> right? He doesn't want just a piece of your life. He wants all of you, and he deserves all of you and all of me. The other application for me as I look at this is worship, right? The God who will, who will part the seas to save his people, right? The God who will do all these things again to take Egypt out of his people. The God who will take on flesh and go to the cross and die for us and then rise from the dead in the greatest miracle ever. That God deserves our worship. Is all of life worship? Absolutely. We should worship every aspect, but there's something special about this. We're told to do this. We're told to gather. We're told to sing. Something unique happens. And I, Paul even talked about it this morning, that you came here, and we, we are hoping that God will meet you where you're at. When we worship, God shows up uniquely among his people. And so let's worship now. We're going to sing a couple more songs, and let's just think, right? right? Just dwell on who God is and how great he is. And thank him. As we sing, uh, we have our prayer walls. You can come up. You can write a prayer. You can sit there and pray. You can confess sin. I'm going to go in the back. I'll be to the back right. If you want to talk to me about anything, following Jesus, right, maybe confessing sin, a question, anything, I'm going to be there available to you. But let's worship. God, uh, your word is actually a lot of fun. Um, as we look through history and we see the things that you have done we get a pretty good picture of who you are. There's a lot of mystery with who you are, um, and we're okay with that because you're God and we're not. But God, I thank you that you have revealed the things that you have revealed. God, I thank you for what you did in Egypt, what you did for your people, and that we can look back. I thank you that we're not there, that, that would have been pretty miserable. Um, but God, I thank you that we can look back, and I thank you most for Jesus, for what you did on the cross, Jesus, dying, rising from the dead. And I also thank you that we can look forward to your return. We see these three times in Scripture of great miracles. There's going to be one more. 
That one more time, God, is when you return, Jesus, when you come back and you set up your rule and reign forever. And we cannot wait. Until then, please find us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.